Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by three of my colleagues today. Uh, of course, there's Ryan Sweet, Director of Real-Time Economics, looking dapper. Uh, not as dapper as Chris Dorides. Chris is the Deputy <laughs> Chief Economist. No, no one looks but even... You know, I've got my hair. You got your tie on. My tie on, and I still don't look as dapper. Oh, come on, come on. And then Dante dusts off the old uh, tablecloth shirt. And that's our third colleague, Dante D'Antonio, joining us for the... How many times have you been on this podcast, Dante? My third time. Third time. And yeah, yeah, uh, are you going to take that from Ryan? Jeez, that's... You know, he is my boss, so I'll love him. Oh, he is. Oh, I didn't realize that. (laughs) Okay. I think you all look right. great, Dante. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. I was I trying wear, to match I wear you. Those shirts. Yeah. I, yeah, I wear those shirts all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think he looks that good, to tell you the truth. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not good as thing good he, as Chris. Look at Chris. Yeah. I mean, now he, he's got a, a, a green hoodie thing going on now, I think. Is that the is that a hoodie? There? That, that is a hoodie, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just in case he gets cold. He's good. Yeah. He's ready. Yeah, yeah, is, go. I think they turned out the... I'm in the office. I think, I think you're keeping the heat a little low here, Mark. <laughs> Well, are you? Is, that is right? anyone else in there? That's me and Gail. There's two Gail, of us here. Right. Yeah. Well, suck it up. Suck it up. <laughs> well, um, hence the hoodie. Hey, we're going to talk about jobs. Obviously, this is Jobs Friday. Uh, we're we're going to take a deep dive into the November employment report. See what it tells us about the economy more broadly, and about labor market issues. And no better person to have here to do that than Dante. Dante, can you just remind us of your background? Um, you know, just I. You're, I think you, you're, you're Bureau of Labor Statistics, right? After you, do I have that right? Right out of college, I worked at the Bureau of Labor Statistics doing state and metro employment estimates. And then I went to grad school and then I came here. And, and what, what did you do with the state and the metro? <laughs> did you actually put those data together? Yeah, we put the data together, you know, put the press releases together, answered client questions and things. Hey, did I ever tell you guys the very first thing I did as an economist, well, you know, I called myself an economist. When I started calling myself an economist was to marry the different data sets that had employment at a state metro area level, because each data set covers kind of a different part of the labor market. There's disclosure holes, things don't add up, you know, so I worked to try to bring all those data sets together and try to make sense out of them, make one grand data set. That was the very first thing I did uh, coming out of school. I learned a lot about the, about the data, about programming. I mean, it was a pretty cool project actually. And I, you know, the, the really uh, weird thing is I think we're still doing that. Aren't we? I mean, a lot of the work is trying to, glean information from these various data sets that we collect from the from government agencies, including the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Yeah. Are you impressed, Dante? Did you know I was doing that with your data? I you had no I idea. Did, I did not know that, no. Yeah, I was. Okay. Before my time. Yeah. Well, it's good to have everyone. Um, and uh, I, it feels like we just did a podcast because we just did one, I believe, on, on a Wednesday. Our uh, podcast for the week of Christmas, we talked about economic threats and opportunities. And, and so that's going to air. Uh, we didn't go over any statistics then, but that's going to air the week of Christmas. But this is, this is um, our uh, weekly podcast, and we are going to do the statistics, and we are going to focus on the job market. So who wants to 
kind of lead the way here on interpreting the job numbers that we got today for the monthly number. Dante, you want to do that or you want Ryan to do that? Or maybe you go first, Dante, and let Ryan fill in the holes and I'll let Ryan go first if he wants. I have a few in my pocket, so he can he can take the first stab at it. All right. All right. Can we start with ADP or I do have a fun stat about that if you want, but uh, I'm, I'm putting the blame on you, Mark. Uh, you, whenever, you, whenever you ask me to be on the podcast, you set in motion uh, a trail of bad things happening. So you want to explain what the, sure. the, for the typical <laughs> listener who doesn't know what the hell we're talking about? We sure. Talking about? Okay. Yeah. So this is my third appearance on the podcast, right? In the, the three times that I've been on, the average miss for ADP, the National Employment Report, is 386,000. Whoa. We have missed very large three all three times when you've asked me to be on the podcast. So what we do is we get we have this relationship with ADP, the, uh, the human resource company that has uh, uh, does payroll records for companies. We get their data for twenty three million employees every month, something along those that order magnitude, and then based on that data, we construct our own estimate of what we think the Bureau of Labor Statistics is going to report for that month. And we do this a few days before BLS actually reports. And this month, we came in at, what, 530,000, I think? For 534, month? yeah. 534. And the actual BLS number was? 235 two, for private. So that's a pretty big miss. And you're right. Every time we come on, we, are, we have last, last month, for example, you weren't on for some reason. You weren't. It was on. my and, fault last month. I had to bail. And that was actually a good one. So I guess I'll take the blame for that. Yeah, right. And ADP was like on the nose, I believe. It was like 500,000 yeah. pretty much on the nose. Yeah, so maybe we shouldn't have you on. You have to wait to ask me until after Friday morning. You have to ask yeah, me at the exactly. very last minute, maybe. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, okay, so Ryan, why don't you give us a sense of the numbers and you know what they said about where we are in the recovery. So, uh, job growth clearly disappointed. So I don't want to give a lot of numbers because we may use some of them in the in the game, but oh, yeah. I think the key takeaway is it's not as bad as it looks. Uh you know, even at, you know, a little over 200,000 increase in non-farm payrolls, that's faster than the average growth that we saw during the last expansion, which was like about 175. So the two over 200 is not a bad number. It was just well short of expectations, so I think there was a, a little bit of a letdown. If you look at the household survey, unemployment rate fell it fell across demographics, uh, race. Uh, it was a clear improvement across the board. Participation was up, which I ignore, but prime age employment's population jumped. So there is plenty of reason for optimism. I mean, it's a, essentially the tale of two surveys. Establishment survey, very, very disappointing. Household survey suggests the economy is booming, which is collaborative with uh, a lot of the other economic data that came out this week. I think you need to explain the difference between establishment survey and household survey. You know, geeks like us know what that means, but I'm not sure. Uh, we, I think we have gone over it in other podcasts, but we mm -hmm. should go over it again. So what's the difference here between those two surveys? So the establishment survey is, uh, that's where the non-farm payroll number comes out. Uh, it's estimated from, and that is a survey that's sent out to businesses asking what, how many people are on their payroll. The household survey is a survey, and Dante, correct me if I'm wrong, 60,000 households. Uh, and you know, they ask a bunch of questions like, are you un uh, unemployed? Are you actively looking for work? Uh, so you have two different ways of measuring employment, asking establishments and asking households. And, and they both come out in the same report every Correct. month. And we as economists and media 
policymakers tend to focus on the the uh, non-farm employment number that comes from the establishment survey, the survey of businesses. Yeah, it's a lot less volatile. So if you look at over time, the volatility in the, the establishment survey measure of employment versus household is substantially lower. So we think there's more information, less noise in when you look month to month in the establishment survey than the household survey. Correct. Household survey, because as you said, is it Dante? Is it 60,000 households? Am I, is that what it is? It's between 60 and 70,000, yeah. Yeah, something like that. That feels like a, and there's what, 125 million households in the United States? I'm making that number up, but something like yeah, so that. Yes, it's a small sample size. So it's, it feels small. And the establishment survey, that is somewhere around what, 25? It, it surveys businesses, establishments that, are, that employ roughly what, 25 million employees, mm-hmm. something like that? Yeah, it's about 400,000 establishments that yeah, usually cover somewhere in the 25 yeah. million worker neighborhood. And there's 150 million, is it 150 million? Yeah, in, uh, out there working roughly, you know, something like that. So that's a, it's, a feels, it's a bigger survey. It's just a bigger survey. Yeah, each one has like their, their positives and their negatives. Like the household survey will have double counting. So Dante and I will be, uh, or the establishment survey, I'm sorry, yeah. will have double counting because Dante and I both teach at Westchester. So we're on their payroll but we're also on Moody's. So there's a little bit of double, double counting. What? Hold on. I don't think that's right. Isn't that, no. that's right? No, 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 no. Yes, no. the establishment no, survey. No. If they ask- Dante, that, that's well, not right. Well, no, in the establishment survey, where they're asking businesses. So Moody's yeah, would report that Ryan and I are employed and Westchester would also report that Ryan and I are on payrolls. So that's in the household counting. survey, they just ask, right. do you have a job? Are you working? Oh. So we would just say yeah. yes. You know, so we'd be counted as a right. person who's working. The payroll survey is no, counting jobs. I misunderstood. So, but we're counted. We have one job. You're not moonlighting, are you, Ryan? You're not. You don't have another job out there that I don't know about. Right? Yeah, Dante and I are both teaching at Westchester yeah. University. Oh, that you know about that's, it. You know about it. Oh, you know about that. that. Oh, I think you yeah. have to approve it every year. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I didn't. Yeah, that's right. You guys mm-hmm. are getting paid for that? We do. Oh, yeah, oh, oh, you are moonlighting. I had, I, didn't, I didn't connect the dots. So that those are two jobs. Yeah, you Correct. are. You, yeah, there you are. But you're only one job in the household survey. Correct. Yeah, got it. Oh my, you scared me for a minute. I thought I was teaching employment to undergrads wrong for 11 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, that still could be true, but you know, not in this case. Not in this case. All right. Uh, I don't believe it. Believe what? I don't believe he's he's been teaching properly. Come on. Oh, no, of course. No, <laughs> I, I just, that's all in yeah. jest. Um, okay, so uh, you're, what you're saying, Ryan, is, okay, two, uh, a little over 200,000 gain in, in the establishment survey. <clears throat> it's on the soft side. You had been expecting, I think, 600K. I was expecting mm-hmm. something even higher than that. Chris, you were expecting something higher, too. And the reason, but you're not really, uh, you know, really disappointed in the miss in, in, in part because all these other data in the report on the household side, a household from the household employment survey, which by the way, employment by that survey was up over a million, I believe in the month, a really big increase, big decline in unemployment, four, six to four, two, 4.2 is a low, low unemployment rate. And I know you don't like the number, but labor force participation rate increased, you know, hours worked increased, which is another sign of strength. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was all, it all and felt you, pretty good, except that top line establishment survey number. Yeah. And that top line number is inconsistent with jobless claims, home-based data, right. 
ISM surveys. So when things like that happen, that's when I dig in to see like, is there an explanation? The response rate. So what percent of surveys were responded to? First print uh, for this this number for November was the lowest since 2008. Now oh. that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. What explains so, that, do you think? I don't know. You usually get really low response rates in August because of vacations yeah. and everything, but November is a little odd. Um, because of the, I think the this, this survey was done early in the month. It was. Could that possibly play a role here? In, in the, These I are phone, right. phone surveys, right? Is that the primary? Are they made? A lot of it's actually online now. It's online. online. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Maybe some of it's maybe done by phone. Still. Typically feel like they do it later in the month. They forgot. It, or, or they just didn't get around to it, you know? Maybe. They, yeah, maybe. But that brings up another point. Uh, that is, revisions right mm-hmm. to data so uh you want to explain that what's going on with the revisions to the data so with each report uh the prior few months are revised and on average the upper revision to employment this this year has averaged 107,000 we got a little bit smaller revisions per month a little bit smaller this time around but they're still quite substantial though dante would probably disagree no, they're big. And I mean, with response rates being as low as they were in November, it's just ripe for a big a revision. Big, yeah. you know, so you're more likely to see a big revision after a low response rate. So you wouldn't be surprised if next month when we get the December data that the November 200,000 job gain is revised up to 300,000 or 350,000. Yeah. yeah, I would not be surprised at all. Yeah, either would I. I agree with you totally. And that's hey, why uh, like, you don't want to get you know, up in arms about one number, one month of employment data. It bounces around. It's very volatile. And we know that number's wrong. It's going to get revised. Right. And I, you know, I think if I asked you, you know, abstracting from the vagaries of the monthly data, the ups and downs and all around, survey issues, seasonal mm-hmm. adjustments, whatever, early survey work, what do you think under actual reality is? What is like underlying monthly job growth? What would you say it was? 555,000. Which is the average since the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dante, yeah, would just, you agree with that? Yeah, I was going to say 500,000. I think you're somewhere in that ballpark. 500K. Chris, are you in the same? Yeah, yeah I was there. I was yeah. going to go a little higher. Say. but yeah. so we're <laughs> What getting, about you, Mark? Exactly. You know, okay. I'll, I'll, you know, it's 525. I'll do a Chris, you know, <laughs> so right, right. I'll go 575 there. now. Okay. There you go. <laughs> now we're getting to like the price is right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but, but that's the reality of yeah. the labor market that we're creating 500,000 ish jobs per month. And that's, that's a lot of jobs. That's a mm-hmm. lot of jobs. We're still yeah. down, I think, 3.9 million jobs from the pre-pandemic peak back in February of 2020. And if you kind of do the arithmetic, we'll get those jobs. If we stick at 500K, which we, we got to definitely talk about, you know, in the context of Omicron and everything else, we got to talk about that. But if, assuming we do, then we'll get these jobs back pretty soon. And, and then some, mm-hmm. yeah. But if you add in the trend, like what job growth would have been pre-pandemic if you extend it throughout the pandemic? Because we would have kept adding jobs if we didn't have a yeah. recession. That shortfall is five million. Not not a big yeah. issue. I mean, it just yeah. maybe delays where we would, you know, how long it gets us okay. back to where we should say, have been. Say it's five million, and mm-hmm. say we're averaging. We continue to average five hundred thousand jobs per month. Next year, we're there by the end yep. of the yeah. year, October. Right? Yeah. By the end of tw- excuse me, the end of twenty twenty two. We're there. Yeah. Okay, that's and that's our forecast. Actually, that's, mm-hmm. that's what we're saying. Yeah, Dante, uh, uh, anything that Ryan missed or you want to highlight, call out 
uh, that you think is important in the number? Yeah, I think the biggest point is that it really was a you know two completely different stories. I mean, a lot of times the two surveys don't completely align, but these were you know sort of polar opposites. You know, I think it's hard to find anything negative about the household survey this time around. You know, if anything, it was much stronger than expectation. Um, and then you you know you obviously have the the payroll survey, which was a disappointment. And you know, I think there there are reasons for that. That you know, revisions are one, response rates are one, seasonal adjustment we can talk about might have been a little bit odd this month. Um, a, li- a little, very. <laughs> Very I don't want to. I don't want to give it away too much. Yeah, no. save it for my. That's number. that's the other technical tech. We've talked about a lot of technical things here. One is the low response rate. Two is when the BLS conducted the survey, a little uh, landed a little earlier in the month. The third is now seasonal adjustment. That's what you're referring to, right? And, and what in where do you see that showing up in the, in the number? The seasonal adjustment issues. So you know, if you look at the unadjusted gain in November, it was actually pretty strong relative to prior years in November, but the seasonal adjustment process brought that number down by a lot more than you would have expected based on you know, previous Novembers. You can see it in retail. I mean, retail employment fell. Uh, if you look at it unadjusted, it was, it was decent. So you know, for some reason, well, I mean, we're gearing up for the holiday shopping season, so the seasonal adjustment yeah. may have been a little bit too aggressive. Yeah, and the early reference week can hurt mm-hmm. retail too because you're you know you're missing out on some of that ramp up in hiring that would happen a little bit later in November, so you're, right. you're not catching all of that early ramp in hiring. So retail is weak. Leisure and hospitality was that was very weak. Very weak. Uh, I think healthcare was weak. Uh, edu- government and again back to schools, education. I think that was weak. Mm-hmm. You know, weak relative to expectations. And do you think all of those were? Casualties of problematic seasonal adjustment, or, or roughly so. I think it certainly played a role. You know, is that, yeah. I don't know if it's the only factor, but I think it certainly yeah. played a part in all of those. Right. Well, you think anything fundamental was going on? It, it couldn't have been Omicron. That came way too late for that to affect the number. Yeah, that came after the reference period. Way after the reference period. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is for everyone, it's the twelfth of the month. The week that includes yeah. the twelfth is the reference period. Meaning that's the week they conduct the survey, the bureau. Correct. Yeah, so that can't be it. So it feels it felt like immediately to me, my instinct was it was a seasonal adjustment issue. Which, which by the way, if that's the case, we we could have some pretty outsized job gains in December when we get the December number or the January number, right? Because if it's yeah. bias lower because of seasonal adjustment this month, you got to get it back seasonally in another month, right? So Correct. We could get a, a surprise to the upside next month or the month after. Okay. Um, okay, Dante, anything, any other things in the, in the report that kind of, you're landing the same place Ryan is, right? That this is more a glass half full than half empty, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, would you have liked to see 500,000 jobs again this month? Yes, but I think this is sort of best case scenario, you know, for that, for the top line of 210, I think everything else, you know, sort of is best case scenario in terms of making you feel less bad about that. Okay. And, And Chris, what about your take on this? Anything to add here? Uh, I certainly agree that the seasonals are what stick out in my mind. I, I think there's some other reasons, though, that may be impacting the data. So I just think about the churn, like all the quits that are going on and people quitting, taking new jobs. I think that can uh, affect how the payrolls are reported or, or even and even who uh, says they're unemployed uh, at any given point in time. So there could be some of that as well. Just we are have so much churn. Much more, much higher than than typical. 
Explain uh, that, that. that. So how would that work? So we know quits, the number of people who are leaving their jobs, a great resignation, so-called great resignation, is at a record higher, or at least it was in the month of, what's the latest data point? September, I think. Uh, we had mm-hmm. a record high. That's from That's the right. job opening labor turnover survey from the BLS. So how, how would that impact or bias lower or push lower the measured gain in jobs? So just timing, right? So I, I'm, someone quits a job and takes a job, but it doesn't start right away. It might start a few weeks out. So the payroll, so they, so they may fall off the payroll on one uh, employer, but they don't get added to the payroll of the, of the new employer right away. It takes some, some time. There's some delay there. So there could be some of that uh, behavior that is impacting the numbers. Right. So, I mean, bottom line, the pandemic is just creating havoc with everything, including the way we're measuring things. And our instinct is looking through the noise, the measurement issues that the Bureau of Labor is having here, that the fundamentally the labor market's strong, that we're 500,000 jobs unemployed. At that pace, unemployment's fallen in pretty quickly here, 4.2%. You know, we are, it's humming along here at a pretty rapid clip. That's the bottom line. Anyone disagree with that? No, the other thing I would point out is just uh, small business entrepreneurship as well. We see that at a high level. That would impact potentially the payroll survey, right? People starting a business, you might not pick it up in the payrolls. They're not part of the sample, but it should turn up in the household survey. People would report that they're working. Oh, so interesting point. Right. that could be a potential difference that would be consistent with what we're seeing in the data. So Does that mean- gives me some some optimism around the, the numbers here. Yeah. Some more optimism. Right? Yeah. 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 So has anyone looked at the, over time, let's say that since the pandemic hit, the difference between the household and the payroll survey, are they close to each other or are they, is there a gap between them? Do you know? Has anyone I think that? If you look over like the course of the year, they're pretty close, but they, they definitely diverge month to month. So there's actually a similarly large, divergence in the other direction in June, I believe, where the household survey was much, much weaker than the establishment survey. And so they sort of net out over time, but they can be quite different month to month. Oh, go ahead, Ryan. I was going to say that if you do the cumulative increase since the beginning of the year, they're both 6.1 million. Oh, okay. So they're on the nose. I mean, they they diverge for a period of time, but now that gap is closed. So they're saying the same thing. They're saying... Mm -hmm. Underlying job growth is 500,000, 550,000 per month, something like that. Correct. In, yeah. Okay. Okay. Very good. Okay. Um, all right. We're going to come back to the labor market, but before we do, let's play, let's play the game, right? Let's play the statistics game. Uh, and uh, everyone knows how to play this game. It's pretty simple. Uh, you uh, name a statistic. Hopefully it's one that is uh, not too easy that, it's a slam dunk, not too hard that we'll never get, and is some is hopefully relevant to the conversation. We do have a debate about the last rule and whether that has to, has to be a, a statistic that was released in the last week. Everybody has to follow that rule, but me. I'm allowed mm-hmm. to break that rule, you know, regularly. Uh, but uh, every, we have to. That's another rule. Um, with okay, with that as. And of course, we all the rest of us try to. You got the cowbell? Yeah, I see the cowbell in the right background here. there. And uh, oh, it's up. It's up front now. Okay, you got. We you got two of them. Cowbells? Oh, yeah. I well, know. I have one for you and one for Chris. Oh, I didn't. I, yeah, I got to drop them off at the office. Yeah, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So who wants to go first? You want to let Chris go first? I feel bad for Chris. Yeah. Okay. Oh, you feel bad. All right. Because yeah. he never, uh, you know, he, he really needs help with this game. I he absolutely does. do. I'm, yeah. um, I cannot. Well, by the way, guys, I, I really, I've been very busy. I, I don't have a statistic, but I will come up one by the time, one with, uh, by the, and a really good one, by the way, by the time it comes around to me. <laughs> All right, Chris. What's, so what's what housing name? number is Chris going to pick? Oh, no. Really? Oh, that is just rude. That is just rude. It is rude. Right. What is the back to normal? In anyway. Um, oh, <laughs> Talk about data problems. I don't know if you saw hey, No, hey. never mind. Yeah. Let's not go yeah, down that yeah, road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 5.7%. Yeah. 5.7%. This wages? Somewhere. It's not wages. Okay. It is employment related. Is it the unemployment rate for some demographic? Oh, yes. Wow. Okay. Uh, is it the unemployment rate for uh, Black Americans? No. Hispanic Less than Americans. high school. Yes. Less Bingo. than high school. You got it. You see, All right. that's, that's why he's the champ. Well, no, hold on. Wait a second. Should Ryan get credit? We should get. No. Both get awarded half, credit half a point each. Yeah, half, half a point. point. Yeah, there you go. I'll be the arbiter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very good. So five point seven for less than high school. So what? What's the deal? Yes. What's, uh, what's the story there? So what? Uh, why I chose it? Why it stuck out yeah, is that exactly. that was down one point seven percent over the month. It was seven point four percent the month before. Right. Mm. So we talked about all the data issues. So that maybe there's something there. But assuming that's real, that is the certainly the the greatest increase or the greatest improvement, I should say, in unemployment across uh, the different education groups. And I also would suggest that there are more opportunities being extended to folks with lower education. And certainly from the Fed's point of view, that's, that's one of their mandate or one of their desires is to create more employment opportunities across the distribution. So that is certainly positive news. 5.7% is the unemployment rate uh, that this group had in January of 2020, right before the pandemic as well. So oh, they have fully recovered versus the other groups are still uh, a bit higher. Wow, that is really interesting. So the 5.7% for folks with less than a high school degree is where it was pre-pandemic. In January, that's right. Oh, goodness. And you that, talked about the the elevated level of churn. That's actually the group where most of that elevated churn is coming from. If you look at job switching rates by educational attainments, you know most of the other groups are sort of just back to where they were pre-pandemic. But that less than high school group is well above uh, where they were pre-pandemic in terms of the rate of job switching. That's also and they're seeing the some of the yeah. yeah go ahead. Sorry, going. go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's where some of the largest wage gains are coming from as well. So. And, and we know that from the Atlanta wage tracker, the Atlanta Fed wage tracker. They have this really great tracker where they follow the same workers and uh, look at their wages over time. So it helps uh, account for mix effects, you know, changing occupations, changing industries. And so um, I think almost all of the acceleration, correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, but I think almost all of the acceleration in wage growth that we've observed in the pen in recently is been in that group, low skilled workers, less than high school education. Yeah. Is that yeah, right? Certainly, yeah. yeah. Certainly the largest. Is that right? Largest that I'm not misstating yeah. that. Right. I don't want yeah, to mislead right. your students or anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. Okay, Only Ryan does one. that. It's fine. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so look, Chris, can I ask you this? It sounds like you looked at the unemployment rates across various demographics. Did anything else stand out across race or any other age or anything else that you noticed? This one, this was the one that stood out the most okay. uh, to me. Uh, women in terms of participating were still lagging in terms of their improvement, right? Um, uh-huh. Compared to men, but I, but still, they were they are making improvement. It's not, yeah, it's not that they're stalling, but um, yeah, okay. everything else kind of fit. I don't know Dante or Ryan if you saw anything. Anything else in the, in the unemployment rate across the demographic that you noticed? No, mm-hmm. okay, nothing overly surprising. No. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, okay, um, okay. Let's go to uh, Ryan. Ryan, what is your statistic of the week? All right. Well, Dante, should I use that one, Dante? You can. I'll abstain. I won't. I won't guess. Right. It's fine. Because I emailed. Were you, were you guys recluding? Is that what no? You're I emailed a colleague. Hey, well, that's the other rule, the fifth rule. I thought it was unspoken. You know, we, it, it is unspoken. Do. No, no collusion. I, e- I emailed one of our colleagues, and I was like, you "This really jumped." Emailed them. That's collusion. No, right? not him. I emailed her. I was like, okay. "This really jumped out," and right. then she replied and CC Dante on it, and I was like, "Oh, got <sighs> it. Okay." All right. Inadvertent collusion. The SEC yeah. would still be after you, by the way. But, All right. You ready? Yeah. 1.9 million. 1.9 million. Is that the number of people said that they weren't working because they were ill? Uh, no. But it, that's, that's over a million. In fact, oh, there, were, okay. there was 1.2 million people that were unable to look for work in November because of the pandemic. Which is a little change from October. Oh, is that right? Well, yeah, there's still a lot of people who can't look for work. What has that come? Did it come down from like September when Delta yeah. was at its peak? Yeah, it's down a little bit, but oh, okay. Still. So it was it was high in September. It came down 1.2 million in October and did not improve in November. Correct. The number of people that said I'm not working, be, I'm not working because no, I'm unable to look for work because of the unable pandemic. Unable to look for work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, interesting. This so is that, 1.9 million. Okay, but uh, I'm assuming I'm in. We're in the ballpark, right? This is a jo- job-related. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a clue. Right. Uh, you know you're going to get called out. This is impossible, Ryan. There's no way anyone's going to get. Oh, I look at this so, every okay. single now month. The, now the gauntlet <laughs> has been laid down, Chris. Wow. Yeah. I, I feel uh, safe now, in saying now, that that you are not going to get this. Listener, stuff. buckle in because we're going to be at this for a long time. You know, <laughs> no, it's in the household survey, and I look at this every single month. Oh, it's in the household survey, and you look mm-hmm. at it every single month, and it's impossible for us to guess. Correct. So, yeah. But it's a that, very telling uh, number. It's a very... And you've never and talked about it before? You have talked about it before. No, I, t- I only talk about... No, I haven't talked about it. But this, this gap is uh, enormous. Oh, really? One you look at Dante just chuckling over there. Are really? one of use, like marginally attached or part-time? It's think in about the household our, survey. Think about our earlier oh. discussion. Our earlier discussion about the differences between the household survey and the establishment survey. Oh, is that the number of uh, part-timers that are... You're on the right track. We take those out, right? Uh, the right I don't want you guys to suffer. So Two jobs. <laughs> I'm not going to okay. let you suffer. You, uh, no, what's happening here is we're getting close enough that you don't want us to <laughs> no, get it. You can let them flail for another two okay. minutes if you want. Uh, all right. I'll uh, let you guys. No, go ahead. Right. No, go ahead. That's it. It's getting very awkward now. Yes. Right. <laughs> so 1.9 million. That's the increase in the adjusted household employment. An adjusted household employment 
is uh, a better apples to apples comparison to the establishment survey. So they strip out, you know, ag. Um, That's a good one. Um, what is it? That is uh, self-employed. Self-employed, yeah. Private household workers, things like that. So you know, when we get these big misses like this, or big discrepancies between the household survey and the establishment, I always go to the adjusted household number. Oh, you're saying you're saying okay. I, I take the household employment survey. We know that mm-hmm. is conceptually there's some differences with the establishment survey. Uh, let's make changes, adjustments to the household survey to be comparable conceptually to the employment survey. Correct. And if I do that for the data in the month of November, employment increased by 1.9 million. Correct. So th- whereas the adjust- actual establishment survey was up 200,000. Correct. So the Whoa. adjusted household employment number had been lagging behind the establishment number, but now they've caught up. So I think there was some catch up in November. I don't think we created 1.9 million jobs, but I mean, the discrepancy or the difference is just, uh, it's enormous. It, has it ever been that large? That sounds yeah. like a whole, is it, What is it I typically? Seen, do you know? Yeah, what's it typically? I have to look it up, but it, I don't know. I can't remember a time it was this big. Maybe during the pandemic, but uh-huh. you know, ex- pre-pandemic, I don't think it was this big. No. There was a big swing in self-employed workers. I know Mark, you and I had talked about, you know, there had been a big oh, yeah. increase in self-employed and that actually fell quite a bit Down. in November, yeah. Yeah, which is contributing oh, to why okay. that adjusted so number is so there's, high. There's definitely some statistical noise in this. There's no doubt. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. What is the sample error in the survey? They're both surveys, right? So yeah, yeah they think the, reports. that might be useful for the listener just to know. The establishment, I believe, is plus or minus 100,000. Household survey, I don't know. Maybe Dante knows. I think for you know, I don't know the well, I don't know what it is for the employment number out of the household survey. I think the unemployment rate it's a tenth of a percent. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of you know, not significant bad. change. Yeah, yeah. But what's okay, nice well, is the BLS puts out these tables, which tell you if a change in uh, the components of the household survey are statistically significant. So that's kind of helpful. Hey Ryan, do we do, is that data in a data bank that I can get at? Yeah, I can send you it's, it's in our the mnemonic yep. set. Can you send me the mnemonic? Yeah. Of course. All right. The mnemonic being the code that I would use to print it out. Because I, I, I might want to tweet this, actually. I, I don't mind if I tweet I'll, it to you. Oh, by the way. Here we go. At Mark Zandy. At Mark Zandy. Uh, that's my, new, my, my Twitter handle. I usually, I usually quicker on the draw there. Yeah, to, 39 yeah. minutes. <laughs> 39 minutes in. It took me 39 minutes. Oh, are you tracking guys. that week to week, Chris? Are you? <laughs> but, but in all it's going to be on the data buffet. Yeah. Go look at the Twitter feed. I'm now plugging the podcast. So, you know, it, all right. it goes all in both right. directions. It goes in mm-hmm. both directions. <laughs> All right. I'm working hard on both, both sides here. Okay. Very good. That, that Ryan, uh, kudos. Yeah. Yeah. Kudos. Uh, see how it's done, Dante. Yep, oh, there it is. Chris, Chris has, has a makeshift cowbell. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> that was, that's like a dinner bell. <laughs> yeah. All right. like cowbell. Come to nope, dinner, no. Chris. <laughs> the wine is on. All right. Uh, all right. Uh, all right. Dante. <laughs> that was great. Friend. Dante. Yes. Yeah. Dante. I mean that. Oh, now you guys, you weren't colluding with Ryan on this one. Were you? <laughs> no, yeah, Ryan, <laughs> you may have seen this. You weren't responding to the conversation. Uh, I was also oh, having a conversation oh, with a no. former colleague. I did not look at this number. Emails. And I don't think Ryan actually was paying attention to the thread. So. Okay. okay. The sheer okay. amount but, of emails that they had going back and forth. I was like, yeah, <laughs> stop. Like, so the number is 568,000. 
And this is also a continuation of our sort of initial conversation. Around the household uh, payroll survey, right. the different discrepancies between the two. Or the yeah, issues with the number this month. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're, this this isn't this this would be this would oh. not be right. It's not the self-employed. Back to the self-employed, is it? No. no. Okay. All right. That it's wasn't that Is that just the difference between? That's what I was thinking. Non-seasonally adjusted and seasonally adjusted. It is. There you oh, go. Very awesome. good. There you go. A ring the bell. So, yeah. <laughs> Here you uh, get the real uh, cowbell. That's nice. That is. Yeah. So I, I mentioned it was unusually large. That is, you know, by far the largest difference in the non-seasonally adjusted versus seasonally adjusted in a November in the whole history of the series. Mm-hmm. You know, compared to recent years, that's you know about two hundred thousand higher in terms of the negative adjustment in November. So if hold, that, hold I, I missed something. I missed something. So this is the in the household survey you're saying now? No, in the establishment survey. Oh, in the establishment survey. So the unadjusted number was seven hundred and seventy-eight thousand. Yeah. Adjusted was two ten. So in November, the adjustment's always negative, but this adjustment was particularly large for some reason, much much larger than it has been in recent years. Oh, oh, okay. So that's the largest you said in history. In November, yeah. yeah in the for month any of November. November, the largest difference between seasonally adjusted and unadjusted employment gain in the month of November in history mm-hmm. this month. Right. Mm-hmm. If the seasonal adjustment had been similar to the last few years, the top line yeah. number would have been like 450 instead of 210. Oh, oh okay. Well, all right. That's so, a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why that, don't get hung up on this number. Really don't get hung up on this yeah, number. Yeah, just ignore it. Just ignore it. Say something else, Ryan. Just turn off the podcast. Is that what we're doing? Turn off the podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, don't turn off the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I guess I got to go, not, man. I, yep. I'm just not up to it. I just, I'm going to fail. Somehow I feel inadequate here. All right. I got to go. But, I, you, you know, I, you always got about, one. Huh? You always got something. Come on. You can always uh, go to copper prices. No. I, I got one. I got one related. It's related, but it's not, um, it's not, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's not in the employment survey. So, or in the employment data, we got okay. 69.1%. Oh, that's the ISM non-man. Yeah. ISM non-man. Yeah. That record high. I, we had, to, high. I had to say it, right? Yeah. I mean, Come that on. is a record high. I mean, how could I, how could we not say the ISM non-man's 69? Well, just for everyone knows ISM Institute for Supply Management non-manufacturing. These are, you know, kind of purchasing manager folks and they get surveyed every month uh, and asked a range of questions about everything from, you know, uh, orders for uh, what they produce, output, employment, uh, pricing. Oh, there's also supplier deliveries. That's a good window into supply chain issues. Um, And uh, the overall index came in at 69.1%. For the month of November, that came out today. With same, just a little bit after the employment report, and that was an all-time record high, all-time, mm-hmm. never higher. And it goes well. I mean, it's a little. That survey is not quite as long as the manufacturing survey, right? No, but I think it goes, it goes back, back to back, or, early two thousands. Is it? Is it, it doesn't go back further. I thought it did. It only Maybe it goes a little back. It doesn't go back. You know, ISM yeah. man goes way back. Well, it goes way back. Um, the. Every, obviously, everything was strong. Uh, on the supplier deliveries, that was the index was 75.7. Uh, that is roughly what it was the month before, and it's still, that's high. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that it's not the highest it has been uh, in recent months, uh, but it is very high. It does indicate that 
the supply chains still remain quite muddled. Uh, they're, they're moving in the right direction, getting, they're improving, shipping rates are down from China to the U.S. and number of ships in LA, Long Beach port that need to get offloaded. That's come way in. I noticed that has come way in. But uh, this would suggest that the you know supplier uh, supply chains remain uh, you know still a little bit scrambled. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else on that survey, uh, Ryan? Because I know you look at that very carefully. Anything else there? Well, the employment well, index I, was up. You mentioned the employment index it? went up. Employment uh, index was up. And I think just to keep in mind, like the ISM uh, non-manufacturing in the manufacturing surveys, they're they measure the breadth of uh, improvement. So it suggests that you know the improvement across non-manufacturing is broadening out. Which is a good thing for the outlook. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's kind of sort of like a sentiment index to some degree, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, folks that are filling this out base it on what they're observing in their business, correct? But you know, it's in it's not all numbers. It's you know, they're kind of giving you a sense of how things are going, and uh, so it's 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 part actual data, part actual sentiment. I think. Yeah, for the manufacturing survey, you can tease out the sentiment component by mapping the hard data on like factory orders, manufacturing employment to the components. Uh, I haven't looked at it recently, but I can I can send you that chart too. Yeah, that'd be great. How about that gasoline chart I sent you? That was fantastic. By the way, I tweeted that. People loved it. Yeah, <laughs> people loved it. I was actually on CNN earlier today and they called that out. So, you know, it went viral. Thank you. I appreciate that though. Hey, anything I can do to get you to go viral? Yeah. Yeah, and, and it, it just for the listener, I mean, this is pretty amazing. It, well, why don't you describe it, Ryan? You know, what, what was that? Uh, what are you referring to? So the the chart I sent you and Chris is uh, wholesale uh, gasoline prices, uh, a two week lead, uh, and there's a very strong relationship between that and retail gasoline prices. And so, because wholesale leads retail, we have an idea of where prices at the pump are going, and just based on the drop in wholesale prices over the last two weeks. We could get down to three dollars per gallon in you know a couple weeks. Yeah, right. it dropped again today. It did. What the wholesale prices dropped again today? Or retail? Yeah, one ninety five. Okay, very wholesale. good. And of course, this is really you know we were spend. It feels like this might be an esoteric number, but it really isn't. I mean, I, my sense is that gasoline prices may be the single most important variable people are focused on when trying to gauge the health of their finances and, and the broader economy. If they see gas prices are high and rising, they, no matter what else is, no matter what else is going on, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, unemployment could be low. Wage growth could be strong. Stock prices are record high. Housing values are, by the way, that sounds like the current time, doesn't it? Uh, mm-hmm. They don't care. It's like, I'm depressed because I'm spending this amount of money to fill up my gasoline tank. So if it heads south, if it starts declining and goes below three, if that if I, if that characterization of how people think is right, then we should start to see people start feeling a little bit better about things here pretty soon. Yeah, and then kind of Good. wrapping up the whole you know, disappointing November employment number. Yeah, uh, our GDP tracking model, which takes all the source data that's released that goes into GDP, uh, increased this week to eight point seven percent at an annualized rate for Q four. Yeah, I mean. Boom. We're, we're likely not going to get that number because Omicron will like likely take a little bit uh, a bite out of it. But you know, we're still it's the economy's booming. Yeah, I, I, we also put a, a monthly GDP number together. You know, the GDP is released quarterly by the Bureau of Economic Analysis, but we have the underlying 
data that goes into the construction of GDP. And based on that, we can estimate what we think GDP did in the month. And I noticed in the month of October, that increased 2.2%, not annualized. Mm-hmm. You know, if you Correct. annualize that, just that's a big number, you know, double, you know, close to a double digit number. So gives you a sense of how strong, and that was the month of October. In November, you know, it feels like that's going to be strong. I mean, pretty solid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Despite the job number. Yeah. Okay. Uh, very good. I, you know, I do think we need to talk about the elephant in the room and that's uh, this uh, Omicron variant. Um, you know, I, I, I have a frame for thinking about it, but I'm curious how you guys are thinking about this. Uh, you know, how should, uh, how should people kind of, how, how would you put this into perspective for people? Does it, did you guys want to, Anybody got a view on that? You know, what, how are you thinking about it in terms of what it means for the economy and the outlook? Ryan, you want to go? You want to get? You got? I'd let Chris there? go first. I mean, he's okay. Chris, okay. he's been the the epidemiologist, assumption, he has. assumption he's guru. Done a pretty good so. job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How are you thinking about this, Chris? Yeah. Well, it all comes back to psychology again. So I use Delta as the as the benchmark, right? So what happened on, under the Delta wave? Except that I, I think we do continue to adapt, and therefore. While I do expect to see a, a jump in cases, we already see a jump in cases due to Omicron. Uh, the severity is unknown, but so far indications seem to be that it, it's, not, it's at least not substantially uh, worse than than, to, uh, than what we see for Delta, but that, that is to be determined. So my sense is that it certainly has an impact on the various sectors that we saw impacted under Delta. So travel, leisure, hospitality, certainly. But then overall, I I'm not expecting to see much of a a dramatic impact. And I think we, the impacts that we saw under Delta become even lessened here as people adapt and adjust uh, to this wave. And I think we're continuously doing that and there will be future waves and we'll continue to adjust. So mm-hmm. I'm cautiously optimistic, I guess you would say, but I, certainly there is some impact. There's some cause for concern, but at least right now, I'm not overly concerned that the numbers are going to be impacted materially. Let me ask you this, just to put con- just kind of get a little bit more yeah. uh, context around what you're saying. If I go back and I look at the peak of the Delta wave, I think that was early September. In early September, if you look at the seven-day kind of moving average of case uh, confirmed cases of infection, it peaked out at around 175,000. Is that? I think that's roughly right. Yeah, I think that's right. That's- yeah, we we. It then fell, uh, you know, through uh, perhaps mid, early mid November, bottomed out around seventy five thousand uh, per day on a seven day week moving basis, and then now more recently, I think we're back up to hundred k. And this is really bef- well, maybe that does reflect some Omicron, and we don't even know. It could be. Yeah. We we thought that was Delta, but maybe also Omicron's kicking in here. If we get back to say one hundred seventy five k, like early January, uh, and the virulence of Omicron is similar to the virulence of Delta. Let's say it's the next wave, the Omicron wave, is very similar to Delta. Do you think the impact on the economy will be the same? And again, Delta, in my view, did a lot of damage. You know, GDP growth in Q3 in the U.S. was 2%, and that was all inventories. It spiked inflation, it scrambled supply chains, it messed up the job market, it hurt consumer confidence, it caused people to shift. Again, they're spending away from travel and restaurants to stuff, you know, goods. Do you think we're looking at the same kind of impact in Q1 that 
because of Omicron Q1 of, 2000, of 2022 that we saw in the Q3 of, of 2021 because of Delta? Or, not, or I don't. something less I, than that? I think it's less, uh, less. than that. Certainly, we, and I, I think about it in two ways. One is the direct impact within the United States. And I think the U.S. consumer has adapted and will continue to adapt, as I said. So I, I think that the impact in terms of their behavior actually is lessened. The real, a bit of a wild card is what happens in Southeast Asia because of the supply chain issues. There too, I think they've adapted, but the tolerance levels in some of the countries is, is much lower, right? So China shuts down in the first sign of, a, of, a, of infection. So there I could certainly make a story around the supply chain issues getting um, impacted once again, and there could be some of the knock-on effects around that. My assumption, my working assumption, though, is that even there, uh, countries are adapting, or at least they they have a, a playbook now based on what they experienced during Delta. So the the impact should be lessened. But yeah, that's my take. I don't know if yeah, uh, yeah, no. others. Uh, Ryan, agree. Yeah, what do you think about that? Is are you in the same camp as? Oh, yeah, my biggest concern is back to Chris's point about supply chains and the potential inflationary implications. Mm-hmm. I mean, Europe, Germany's tightening their social uh, distancing requirements. There's vaccine mandates rolling out across Europe. So, you know, it, it all it all depends on how governments respond to this. So I'm not worried yeah, right. about the domestic economy. It's more, right. you know, it's the, the knock-on effects in APAC, in Europe, in Latin America. So what you're saying is you think is there's a possibility. If, in my scenario, where Omicron is similar in con- contagion and virulence to Delta, the the concern would be that countries overseas get hit really hard and they lock down to a more significant mm-hmm. degree, which reverberates around the world through supply chains and all kinds of ways it reverberates back on us. Trade yep. trade flows or trade deficit would widen out again, probably that kind of thing. Right. And the other thing I'm worried about is the stock market and investor sentiment. You know, it's yeah. they're fickle. They're a fickle bunch. And you know, when you get these news about, you know, the Delta variant and now Omicron, you know, that could you know, be a catalyst for, you know, a drop in stock prices. By the way, that reminds me, uh, and this is a pod, a cut, we might want to do this next week for the podcast, if we don't have a guest, is uh, bubbles and asset markets again. I think we had our first bu- podcast was around bubbles. We all concluded, no big deal. I don't know. We should come back because there was another chart you sent to us last night, right, Ryan? And that yeah. Was- yeah, that one's going to give me nightmares. <laughs> yeah, what was, yeah, just describe that. All right. So now, this is a listener. We're taking a bit of a quick tangent here. We'll come back. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. But no, it's all tied to. We want to. We want to call this come. out. Yeah. Yeah. So if you look at, and this is data from the Federal Reserve, uh, the margins, uh, margin accounts at brokers and uh, broker dealers. So the value of margin accounts is five hundred five hundred ninety five billion, which is twice what it was pre-pandemic. So yeah, margin, that, I just say that's margin debt. That's what people are borrowing to finance purchases of stock. That's the right. Leverage. So what right. I, yeah. Yep. So I'm worried that if you get a, you know a garden variety correction, which is inevitable, it's going to happen. Happens roughly every two years since 1970. That this one is on steroids and turns into something worse because there's going to be margin calls, and if you don't have the cash to put up for the margin call, you're going to have to sell your assets. So this reinforcing cycle kicks in. Yeah. Okay. To connect That's how Dante's buying all his uh, meme stocks. Right. Really? Dante is uh, a speculator? I'm very much not a speculator now. No, you don't speculate. You're I right. leave that to Chris. I love Chris. Yeah. Yeah. I love yeah, he shifted crypto, crypto, right? <laughs> yeah. 
They're more secure. Well, anyway, that's a big deal. That mm-hmm. looks like a big deal. So we're going to come back to that maybe in the next podcast Talk and talk about all asset markets because everything feels like it's somewhat more frothy than it was just not too long ago, a few months ago. Anyway. And the Fed releases a semi-annual financial stability report, and they're calling out all these assets as being you know, of concern. They're froth. Oh, have they released that report? I missed that. Uh, a couple weeks ago. Oh, really? I missed it. Mm-hmm. Got to go go take a look. Dante, going back to my the question around Omicron and how to think about it in terms of its economic consequence, uh, what, what do you say? Do you think uh, if Omicron is similar in, in contagion and is contagious, you know, get the same number of infections and we get the same kind of virulence, we are... Uh, the economy will navigate through more gracefully or, or not? I think so. I mean, to your point about the outlook, I think, you know, thinking about the labor market, I don't know that it changes my expectation of where we'll be a year from now. I think maybe it reshuffles how that plays out. You know, maybe we get weaker job gains over the next few months and then you get slightly stronger job growth, you know, in mid second half of 2022 versus sort of a steady 500,000 pace or something. So I think maybe it resorts you know, the magnitudes a little bit, but I don't know that it changes where we are a year from now. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's the way I think about it. I mean, my sense is that we're going to have waves. Omicron may in fact be obviously the next wave, even if, if it's not, there's another one coming, you know, almost we need to count on it. Pollyannish not to, and that uh, each wave new wave will be less disruptive to the healthcare system and the economy than the previous wave. That on the healthcare side, you know, we've got vaccines. We're better at engineering the vaccines to address the variants that are forming quickly with mRNA technology. We've got the COVID, uh, any, the excuse me, the antiviral COVID drugs. We come up with different miti- ways of mitigating the risks. We're getting more coordinated globally and trying to you know cordon off where the infections are located. Uh, and then on on the economic side, I think we're just going to get increasingly more inured to all of this. Certainly here in the United States, I can't see a scenario unless things really go off the rails with this pandemic, with the, with the Omicron, that we, we shut things down again. I just, or shut even to a significant degree, call, call, ask businesses to curtail their operations. You know, healthcare hospitals would have to be significantly overwhelmed for that to happen, right. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So we're kind of on the same page, but obviously who knows, right? I mean, yeah. Who knows? Absolutely. And I think a big a big difference, you know, even though the waves are pretty close together, potential waves pretty close together is, you know, vaccines for kids, right? I mean, when Delta came, we didn't have really any kids under 12 vaccinated. The impact to school-age children should be much smaller, even if we do get, you know, sort of a full-blown wave here, because you do have, you know, all of those kids vaccine eligible. And so, you know, the knock-on effect to parents should be much smaller than we saw with Delta. Right. Okay. Great point. Um, yeah. I want to talk about a few uh, labor market issues that you know we've been discussing, debating now since the pandemic hit. Uh, I, I want to uh, just uh, state a position on each of these debates, and then see if anybody wants to uh, to push back or disagree or add color. Um, okay, so and this is in no particular order. Uh, first uh, on uh, why we have this disconnect between the number of unfilled job positions. We've got a, a number, you know, businesses have uh, put up a lot of help wanted signs. Not They're coming in, 
you know, the peak was back a couple of months ago, so, but they're still very elevated. And we still have a fair number of people who are unemployed and more importantly, they've stepped out of the workforce and are not looking for work. So there's this kind of Alice in Wonderland situation where you got a lot of unfilled positions and what seemingly looks like, you know, a relatively high level of unemployed, underemployed people. Uh, there's a lot of reasons I think that are behind that, but I want to throw out one that I think is most fundamental and that is policy. And that goes to in the, in this, this is uh, hearkening to the difference between how we here in the U S address the pandemic from a labor market perspective and how Europe and Japan did. We basically said, other than the PPP program, the paycheck protection program for small business, which, you know, expired a long time ago, let workers lose their jobs and go on to unemployment insurance and we'll help them out there. Uh, whereas in Europe, in Japan, I think a couple of other Asian countries, they decided to pay uh, employers, businesses to hold on to their workers and not lay them off. Uh, and so instead of pushing them into unemployment insurance, they remain on payroll. And this is a m massive difference in policy with huge implications back to the Alice in Wonderland situation we're in. Because in the United States, since we push those folks off payroll and put them in unemployment insurance, the, the workers link to their employer got severed and they became, the workers became disenfranchised from their previous employer and getting them back into their seats, so to speak, has been very hard. But in, the, in, in Europe and Japan, because they had these labor market retention schemes, that never happened. The worker is still there. The, the relationship with the employer is intact. And unemployment, you know, even as the schemes have come off, have remained very, relatively low. What do you guys think of that argument? I mean, do you buy into that perspective or how, how big a deal do you think that is in, in terms of explaining, you know, what we're observing here? here? I'll give you a number to support that. Yeah. So in today's November employment report, 3.6 million people reported that they were uh, unable to work because their employer closed or lost business due to the pandemic. Mm. 3.6 million. That's down a little bit from 3.8 million in October. That's a good point. So those, That's are, those, a those of people. That, yeah. So I think I bet you if you add up the uh, increase the the uh, the, the uh, increase in the number of unemployed today compared to pre-pandemic, and the increase in the number of people who stepped out of the workforce compared to pre-pandemic, it's it's probably four or five million, right? And so you're saying in the data, three three point six million are saying I, I'm not I'm not working because my employer is no longer with us or Correct. they laid me off. Yeah. It makes sense. What do you think, Dante, it? about that theory or that that explanation for you know what's going on here, or partial explanation for what's going on here? Yeah, I think that makes sense. My my question is, you know, what would have happened, you know, if if we would have used a you know a scheme where you keep workers sort of attached to their employer? Yeah, I don't know what happens with you know, go back to the you know parent dynamic. You know, all the kids that were out of school and people that are sort of you know hesitating or delaying coming back to the workforce. What would that look like now as you know, firms are reopening and expecting workers back? You know, if you remained attached and a firm says, okay, we're, we're back open for business, but you're, you know, you're not ready to go back yet. So do you, would you still have those detachments happening just later down the road? Because you know, a, a firm eventually is going to want those people you know, actually back in their seats. And if people are you know, staying out for health reasons, childcare reasons, whatever the case may be, would that still cause those detachments to happen just later on than they did? So, so you're saying... Right now, it looks like the Europeans and Japanese did the right thing, but maybe 
maybe not uh, down the road. Well, I, I'm just not sure how much, you know, I assume by now, if you had used a scheme like that here, you know, firms would have expected workers to be back in, mo- in, in large part uh-huh. by now, right? And there's, as we right. see, there's still several million people that are out of the labor force, you know, that aren't looking for jobs for one reason or another. And so what would have happened to those people, you know, if they had remained attached to their firm, would they have decided to go back or would they have still right. decided to ultimately leave their job anyway? But why would, why would Americans' uh, workers behave differently than European workers? I mean, that doesn't appear to be happening in Europe, right? They appear to be going back. Right, and I don't know that it would be different, but I think there's okay. a risk to it's how well that would work here. Saying, who yeah. knows? Yeah. And Americans are different, so who knows? Yeah, possibly. Yeah. What about you, Chris? What do you think of that? Uh, let me push back a little. We yeah, we did ahead. have a yeah. we did have a PPP program, Paycheck Protection right. Program. So, and we did support a lot of businesses through the uh, pandemic to maintain their payrolls. Right. right? So the, there was support. Is your, are you arguing there just wasn't as much support? Yeah, well, the, I think two things. As, the PPP program was for small business. You had to be fewer than 500 employees, which is about half the labor force. And in fact, if you look at the ADP data, because uh, we have ADP employment by size class, you know, business company size, uh, it, it actually seems to have worked. If you look early on in the pandemic when the PPP program was in place, small businesses laid off many fewer workers than the big guys, you know, particularly companies with over 1,000 employees. It was, and it was actually quite linear, you know, meaning the, the uh, small businesses laid off fewest and then the midsize, the next, and the small, the big guys laid off the most. And of course, then the second thing is PPP expired, right? Or kind of early on, there was two tranches of PPP, but you know, it has expired, it, you know, expired well before we've gotten through the pandemic, you know, uh, and, uh, it, you know, it hasn't been a consistent source of support in all the way through, but you you know, you, you, you're right. we we tried. We 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 partially tried to do it. Uh, we just didn't do it to the same degree as in Europe or in Japan. Yeah. Actually, the other, I proposed uh, an employee retention tax credit. You remember this? The employee retention tax credit that was part of the small part of the CARES Act, and I think there's a, a small expansion of it in the uh, American Rescue Plan. That, in my view, would have you know been very similar to the retention schemes in Europe and Japan, and would have made a big difference here. Sorry, Chris, you were going to say something. Uh, the other point I would make is, uh, I guess it's the perennial question between Europe and, and the U.S. in terms of creative destruction and the, the dynamism of the U.S. economy versus the, would these firms, um, you know, there have been structural changes. Would firms have gone out of business anyway? So we were just delaying, you know, keeping zombie firms alive for a while. Uh, and is it better, are people actually better off to, you know, be forced to innovate and, and change? versus um, being kept, uh, having firms that are kept yeah, alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's, that, that actually is a good point. I, I, agree, I agree with that. So what I'm saying is not wrong, but we were saying there is a, a downside to it and a downside potentially to it. And that downside might be you uh, perpetuate bad business models, business models that are no longer relevant in a post-pandemic world. Think Carnival well, I shouldn't say carnival, say oh. cruise lines, think, think cruise lines, you know, something like that. Or kind of also, you know, when you, uh, it's the creative destruction part. If people lose jobs, they go start other ones. And, right. and as you point out, you can see Americans are starting companies at a very prodigious rate. So, you know, you might not have gotten that same kind of, you know, let's go try something new here if they had been on payroll and, and not, you know, pushed out into the wilds. But 
but so there there's a potential downside to it. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Yeah. So I think you need to strike a balance, right? Strike a balance. Ultimately, yeah. right. I think yeah. the other thing that perhaps limited the impact or the benefit of of PPP is that you had this dual track of benefits, right? You were you created PPP, but at the same time you also enhanced unemployment insurance benefits, mm-hmm. right? Which can could have created mixed incentives for a lot of workers where we we know that you know when unemployment insurance benefits were enhanced at their highest level, there were a lot of workers who would get paid more on unemployment insurance than they were getting paid by their employer. So if you're one of those people and your employer is getting PPP to retain you, you have an incentive, you know, in a lot of cases to have them not retain you, right? To actually lay you off right. so you can collect benefits and maybe go back later, maybe not. But you know, I think yeah. not to say that having the unemployment insurance benefits was a bad thing, but I think it did probably weigh against some of the benefit of PPP. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's a good point. Okay. Um, uh, here's another one uh, that we've been discussing, debating, uh, and that is uh, around uh, wage growth. Uh, and you know, we talked a little bit about this earlier. You know, there's this uh, sense out there that you know we've seen this very significant acceleration in wage growth, and that this is uh, one of the sources of the higher rates of inflation that we're observing right now. You know, the simple idea that. If businesses have to pay workers more, then they got to pass that through to their customers in the form of higher prices. And that's one of the contributing factors to uh, the high rates of inflation we're observing now. My, my sense is that, you know, again, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that narrative isn't necessarily wrong. You know, there might be, it might be playing something of a role, but in the, in the grand scheme of things, in terms of explaining this high rates of inflation, that's, that's really on the margin that the wage growth that we've observed is really among a small group of workers, particularly at the low part of the wage distribution, lower skilled, lower educated workers, that middle wage workers, high wage workers have not seen the same type of acceleration. So it's not been broad-based. And then moreover, that we have seen some improvement in productivity that you know should help to offset the effects of the higher wage growth, at least in terms of what it means for business margins, profitability, and ultimately prices, you know, what they charge for their, their goods and services. That's the way I'm thinking about the wage growth and what it means for inflation. Does anyone want to push back on that one or do they have anything you want to add to that or uh, anything else to say about that? I, I think to date, I would say I a hundred percent agree with that. I think the question is what happens six months from now, a year from now, you know, do we see, continued strong wage growth and is that matched by stronger productivity growth if you see productivity growth come back in i know i'm pessimistic and you see wage growth sort of accelerating at the same time does that eventually lead to a little more pressure on prices i don't think that's happening today but could it you'll build to to more pressure down the road yeah i guess that gets to another uh, question and that is full employment i mean we're at 4.2 percent unemployment rate we're at 61.8% participation. That's still a point and a half off its pre-pandemic level, but that's now starting. We're never that's back never going to gonna that. go back, no. right? But did you see prime age employment to population ratio? And I was going to say, yeah, you show, you pointed that out. The employment to population ratio for 25 to 54 year olds, prime age workers, that's that's what what, what 78.4%. You know, I thought it was 78.8. 78.8. And mm-hmm. oh no, really? 78.8. Okay. Yeah, didn't go. Dante, didn't you go up half a point, half percentage point? I think so. I think it was a pretty big okay. jump this month. Yeah, yeah, seventy eight point eight. Wow, mm-hmm. and or one point two. And what do we think is full employment? 
uh, at least historically, it's 80%. 80%. So we're, as you said, we're 1.2 percentage points away, and that's rising pretty quickly. So are, are we getting to full employment here pretty quickly? End of next year? I mean, why do you think the Fed's starting to panic? The Fed is starting yeah. to panic. Yeah. You, that's why the, the, the Jay Powell in this week's testimony told everyone we, may, we are going to taper, uh, wind down our bond buying quicker than we said earlier. Mm-hmm. Which opens the door for earlier rate hikes. Right. So you, you guys think we are, we're not at full employment, but we're getting within spitting distance of full employment and we're getting there pretty fast, it feels like. No, yes. I don't know. I mean, yeah. what happens if we get to 80% prime age employment to population ratio, but there's still, you know, one, a million people that are unable to work because of the pandemic. Yeah, right. Which is still possible. Yeah. Like, is that full employment? I would probably say no. Right. Yeah, right. I, th- I think there's still a way to go. I mean, you have the employment rate's 4.2, but that you know, doesn't mean a whole lot right now. You know, if you account for all the people that are still out of the labor force, you know, it's significantly higher than that. So, I mean, there's, there's quite a bit of room to run yet. I think you know, whether you know, by this time next year, I think you might be talking about approaching full employment, but certainly I don't think we're, we're there yet. Consumers think we're close. If you look at the conference board's labor market differential, which is the difference between those record that say high. jobs are plentiful versus jobs are hard to get. That's at a record high. It's, yeah. It's keep setting new records month after month. Yep. Month after yeah. month. What do you think, Chris? Are we in, within spitting distance of full employment or we got a ways to go here? Within the next year. So by okay. this time next okay. year. Right? Yeah. So yeah, I don't think it's uh, yeah. next quarter, next, uh, next yeah. six months. I don't think the Fed's going to react very quickly here for that reason, but um, we're certainly making good progress. So yeah, it's closer than what we thought, where we, where we thought we would be at this you know, point early on. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, again, there's a lot between now and the finish line, and yep. that is yep. Omicron and the next wave and the next wave after that. So, yeah, sure. another reason to be, for, if you're the Fed, to be cautious here in pushing us down the path to normalization until we're pretty clear we're on the other side of this pandemic. Yeah. That's right. They're more concerned about uh, the next wave being further inflationary rather than the hit to growth. I mean, yeah, they're they really, getting, wait till you get the CPI next week. Really? Yeah, they're going to be year over year. It's going to be coming in here pretty soon, right? The energy prices got to be coming in. Okay. You got a forecast for us? Up again in November, right? Year over year, we will be just a hair south of 7%. Oh, really? Okay. I didn't realize it was going to be that bad because it's still base effects, I guess, going back to last November. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Meaning last November, business prices were still very weak and businesses mm-hmm. had slash prices. So, you know, relative to that, it's up a lot. But that chart that we have that separates out what's driving inflation. So yeah. energy contribution, supply chains, the reopening, even in November, it's going to be mostly energy and supply chains. Yeah. What about vehicle prices? Have they come in at all? Nope. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. They've plateaued though, right? They're not still... Rising, yeah, yeah. they're they're yeah, not the month of accelerating. November, they were probably up. Still. They were up. Yeah, production was weak. Still, we got, we got one really bad. Another, I think November is going to be another. You're right, ugly number, and that hopefully will be the end of it. 
What's the change in prices relative to pre-pandemic? Do you know that right off the top of your head? So Mark did it on one of our podcasts. What didn't you say? It was like three and a half percent over the last two years. Yeah. If you could look at the core consumer price index, I'm speaking from memory, but I think I got this right. Core CPI. I, I just looked at that. October this year compared to October last year, October this year being the last data point, 4.6%. If you look at October this year compared to October 2019, so two years, and you analyze 3.1%. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 3.1 is higher than the what I would consider to be the Fed's target of two and a half, but, you know, that's not, no one would be talking about it if it was 3.1. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay, one more, one more, because we are uh, getting a little long in the tooth here, as, as I am want to say. Uh, and, I, you know, this is like red meat to the group. Productivity growth. Uh, so Ooh, good thing. Uh, I know Dante separate. was growing a little bit with that Q3 number. GDP was weak. Jobs were strong. But, hey, Dante, looks like Q4 is going to be just the opposite, my friend. So where are we on this productivity debate? What Are you, are you sticking to your guns, Chris? The productivity, absolutely. Productivity. Absolutely. You are. You feel pretty <laughs> yep. good about it. Yep. Any other yep. data points that you want to throw into the mix that supports your view that productivity growth is uh, improving in, on a trend basis, on a secular basis? Anything else you've observed out there? No? no not yet. Yeah. I mean, not yet. Okay. I mean, it's still yeah. early days, but. Yeah. And Dante, you're still on the other side here, right? You're still a, a pessimist. Any, I am. Any yeah. I think they're. Support your view? Uh, I, not a data point, but I think you're, you know, there's still a bit of compositional effect here to be played out, right? I mean, the jobs that we're going to get back, you know, in larger numbers are still tending to be lower productivity jobs, right? So, I mean, I think once you get sort of the full, you know, this time next year, when you're back to sort of a, a more normal labor market mix, I think you know, that is going to be some headwind on productivity, you know, how big that is relative to gains because of investment is, you know, that's up for debate, but I think there is still some headwind from that. I saw Chrissy uh, raised your finger. A, I, I do have a, I, that's a debate. That's a debate. He's gonna he's gonna yes, scold me. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. Okay. No, I was re- I was just recalling my data point is uh, Wawa related. So you'll you'll appreciate this. I went to the Wawa. Oh, Wawa related. Okay. Yes, yes. Wawa over uh, Thanksgiving. Favorite convenience store here yeah. in PA. Yeah. That's far, right. Far away. Self serve kiosks. Hmm. Uh, so there I, you go. Really, I, I missed. Yes, this. I I know. Shocking. So. So wait, wait a second. Hi, uh, serve kiosk. Really? Yes. I, I go in, I get a coffee, I get a, a receipt for it. I don't have to wait in this long line to check out. I go to the self-serve kiosk, barcode, really? flash it, pay with a credit card. I'm out. Right. So well, you know what? I've I see that, that as a productivity. Uh, yeah, that's huge. Play. Dante, Dante, I'm having uh, that's a game changer. Yep. So I'm, game I'm not changer. sweating over. One, That's a game changer. Well, one machine there. at Chris's well, Wawa. I'm not, I'm not sweating uh, yet. Um, Wawa is the uh, predictor as we've, uh, we've oh come to see. That is huge, man. So what I, I know huge. we were, were going to make a field trip to the first Federal Reserve Bank in Philadelphia. Well, someone was telling me. And on the way. And on the way, we got to stop in Wawa. <laughs> oh, no. I was going to say we should, have, we should take the podcast to Wawa since we talk about it so much. We should. We should. We, we should. should. They're just we on should. the road. Headquarters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe I'll send them an email. Yeah, I spoke at one, a function where their CEO and CFO was, and I and I didn't know they were in the audience, and I was raving about Wawa, and <laughs> I got a bag full of Wawa chotskis, you know, and, and for Moody's compliance, well below fifty bucks, you know. I'm not even sure you could put them on eBay, but they 
from from my perspective, it was it was huge. You know, very nice, very nice. Uh, um, I got a hat. I got a. I think I got a mug. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, a Wawa whistle. I think. Nice. Yes, there you go. That. Uh, anyway. I think uh, Ryan's got some questions about their gas too. So mm-hmm. good, good field trip. Yep. Yeah, test that out. <laughs> All right. Okay. I, I think we're, we've played this one out. Uh, any other issues that you want to bring up on the, on the labor market? Anything we missed? Dante, you know, you, I know you're a critic of these podcasts. So uh, any, anything you want to bring up here? I would say one, chance, I, you, know, you mentioned that there, you know, we had a little bit of an improvement in, in labor force participation. I know Ryan disowns it entirely, but I you will know, we'll say most of that improvement was in 16 to 24 year olds, right? There was very little improvement anywhere else in the spectrum of, of age cohort. So you know, it, it's certainly good that it's rising, but you know, it'd be better to see it rising across a, a broad spectrum of people, not just among yeah, young workers. Yeah, for sure. Boy, that had to be a pretty, I didn't notice that. It had to be a pretty big increase to give you two tenths of a percent though. It was up about four tenths in the young group, and it was only up, you know, fifty-five and over was basically flat. It was up one tenth in the prime age group. Oh, okay. And that was really, you know, that's still only getting back. Prime age is now back to where it was a couple months ago, whereas the young workers are, you know, almost fully back to where they were pre-pandemic. So, thank you for that, Dante. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but you're right. We we always try to end on a positive note. We do. That's true. We always try to end on a positive note, Dante. So here's a positive note. Uh, if you look at the labor income proxy, so average hourly earnings for uh, times like uh, hours worked, that points to very strong wage growth in November. Oh, okay. Very good. So you're going to get a lot of income in, in November mm-hmm. from the labor market. Excellent. Good. Excellent. Uh, well, this was a really good podcast. You know, one of my favorites each month. Um, you know, we get a real a window into what's going on in the job market and, and of course, by extension, the broader economy. So, and thanks, Dante, uh, uh, and uh, guys, uh, till uh, next week. I, you know, we have to think about what we want to do for next week, but um, and, and that, that sounds like listener, inflation, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and listener, that reminds me if you've got uh, suggestions, you know what to do. Go to uh, where should they go, Ryan? I can't remember. Economy.com. Economy. And then com. You'll, you'll see the banner right there for podcast suggestions. Yeah, please. That that would be very helpful. Yep. Thank you so much. Take care now. Bye, everyone. Bye.